Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Evert van de Vliert. Uh, he is Professor Emeritus of Organizational Psychology at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. His current research concentrates on cross-national comparisons with an emphasis on the impact of cold, temperate and hot climates on national and organizational cultures. And those are the topics that we're going to explore today. So Dr. Van Vliert, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Pleasure for me too. Okay, great. So perhaps because this is a line of research that I don't explore that much on the channel. I mean, the relationship between uh, climatic conditions, economics, culture, and things like that. Perhaps it would be nice for us to start with an introduction to the topic. So in your work, you talk about the climato-economic niche. What is it about? Well, it's about the climato-economic theory of culture. Mm -hmm. And the central uh, domain is the climato-economic niche. And that's the place of residence of people. And the place of residence has two important characteristics, climate and the economy. And they shape culture, and that is the shared psychosocial functioning of people. But they don't do that separately. So you don't have an impact of climate on culture and an impact of economy on culture. The theory says no, they do it in interaction. So just, just like you can't say a child takes after the father or takes after the mother. No. A child is the interaction of the father and mother genetically. So a culture is a product of both climate and economy in interaction. And one of the most important outcomes is psychosocial functioning in terms of how free you are, uh, whether you are learning, whether you are feeling you are getting ahead, whether others help you and you are being helped and you help others, uh, things like that, uh, that these are indicators of uh, optimal mental and social functioning. And in different climato-economic niches around the world, people are functioning differently because of this interaction of father and mother, of climate and economy. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's, uh, I think it's important for us to differentiate climate from weather, because sometimes people confuse the two. What's the difference yeah, that, there? That, yeah, you're certainly right. The, the, the climate is the average weather. So, the theory doesn't look at the daily weather, whether it's uh, hot or cold, but it's looking at 30-year averages. How are the seasons? Um, how cold are the winters? How hot are the summers? 
And these are important things. And also, when we talk about the economy, we are not talking about uh, a person's income today, but it's it's uh, a longer-term income and uh, how rich is your country, for example, uh, the country that you live in. Mm -hmm. uh, and another question here, I think, would be that climate has many different uh, factors associated with it. Which are the ones that we know have the highest impact on people's psychology, social organization, and things like that? I think the most important one is uh, coming from solar radiation is temperature. Because temperature, yeah, to get rain, for example, uh, you need cold and heat. Uh, and, uh, well, there are theories about parasitic uh, diseases, uh, infectious diseases are important, but uh, you don't have uh, many diseases in very cold winters. Uh, you do have diseases, but uh, less of these infectious dis diseases that you have so much in the tropics. And so the most important uh, factor is cold versus heat. And uh, steady rain is more prominent in cold climates. In, in hot climates, you have more irregular rain and you have more infectious diseases. And the, the, the important, an important, other important thing is that I have invented a thermometer, the thermometer for livability. Mm -hmm. And it says that at 22 degrees Celsius is an ideal temperature for humans to live in. It's the human paradise. And if it gets colder, you get stress. If it gets hotter, hotter than 22 degrees Celsius, which is about 72 degrees Fahrenheit. And a deviation from this ideal temperature gives stress and ask for answers and lead to different cultures. But then that depends on how rich or poor you are. And if you like, I can show you a picture and the research we have been doing recently, and which will be published shortly in the future in the the Journal of Climate Research. Shall I do? Mm -hmm. Yes, please go ahead. Yeah. Here, this is the picture. And what you see here on the vertical axis is psychosocial functioning. That uh, is, is the functioning, well, you, you, you're leading a happy and uh, interesting life and you, you are learning things and you you have social support and you get recognition, all these things. And that's on the vertical axis. On the horizontal axis, you see the eco-stress you were asking about. It varies from cold to heat. And on the cold pole at the left, you also have then steady rain. On the heat pole at the right, you have more infectious diseases and irregular rain cold and heat are the most important factors in this eco-stress, stress from the environment that is important in determining psychosocial functioning. And as I said, you need a father and a mother to produce the, the child of psychosocial functioning. 
So it's climate in combination with the economy. And you see two curves there referring to 72 rich countries and 73 poor countries. But more importantly, they refer to the individuals. This is an individual level piece of research and which was analyzed multi-levelly. And it refers to 400,000 inhabitants of 145 countries. And the outcomes of the climato-economic uh, model of prediction is that in rich countries, you are functioning better mentally and socially if you are in a cold or a hot climate. And the rich people are worse off in the paradise of 22 degrees Celsius. Mm. Why so? Well, because they, can, they cannot re, uh, use their money there. They are rich, so they have a lot of cash and a lot of possessions, capital, but they can't use it to do something with it. But if they are in a cold climate or in a hot climate, yes, then they can use the money because they are challenged by the climate. They are making the best of it and it enjoys them and they have to be creative, etc. So they are living in a more optimal culture if they are living in a more demanding climate. For the poor people, that's the other curve, the red one. For the poor people, that's the opposite. They are better off in a paradise because they, they don't need money, don't need cash and capital, but they are worse off in cold climates and in hot climates because there they need resources to deal with climate, resources that they don't have. They don't have the money, they don't have the education, uh, they have a poor health and uh, they are, well, uh, so that this is uh, one of the main outcomes and there are many studies, but this is the latest one and it confirms all the, the previous studies about the, uh, the fact that uh, when you ask the question, uh, where are you better off in a cold or in a hot climate? The answer is it depends. It depends whether you are rich or poor. And if you are rich, you are better off in a demanding climate. And if you are poor, you are worse off. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Uh, in your work, you distinguish between three different kinds of cultures that result from these uh, climate economic interaction, let's say. Uh, you talk about survival cultures, self-expression cultures and easygoing cultures. I think that in that image we can already have an idea of how a survival culture and a self-expression culture work. Um, in the case, so could you tell us about the three of them and what are the main differences between them? Well, you, in fact, the three of them are projected here in this picture. Mm -hmm. Because when you go to the, to the green curve and you go upward 
to the cold and the hot climates, there uh, you find the self-expression cultures. It's where uh, people have the means, uh, they have the education, they are rich, uh, so they can handle the cold or hot uh, climate and all the problems that they, they have there. They have to be creative. They have, uh, and what they do then in response to this climato-economic niche, uh, they are going to cooperate with each others, people from all groups. They have good coordination. Uh, they, act, they, they act on an individual basis. And they are more happy with each other than many other uh, people on the globe. And these many other are the poor ones uh, on the poor, on the red curve, and there we find the survival cultures on the left and on the right. When you're poor and you are living in a very cold or hot climate, and you have to cope with that climate, but you don't have the resources, you are in a survival culture. And uh, so the self-expression cultures are above, the survival cultures are down there, and where the two curves almost meet almost touch each other there in the human paradise of 22 degrees celsius 72 degrees fahrenheit there we have the easygoing cultures because you don't have to do much because nature works for you mm -hmm. yes uh, so can we say that there's also a relationship between climate and life satisfaction in any sure. way. Sure, because the, the happiest people are found uh, in the richest countries in the more demanding climates and the unhappiest people with the lowest degrees of life satisfaction in all domains, work satisfaction, satisfaction with your partner, etc. you'll find in poor countries in uh, cold and hot climates. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe we can explore some areas of human uh, human societies where this climato-economic niche expresses itself. So let's start with families and gender. So uh, is there any relationship between parental investment theory uh, as it comes from evolutionary biology and climate and what would it be? Well, that's it's very interesting that you mention uh, the biology because uh, let's start with, with the biology uh, and the best point to start with is birds because biologists have found that there are about 14,100 birds species, bird species in the world. And these birds, they have, of course, uh, sometimes male care, eh, paternal care, sometimes female care, maternal care. And more often than not, they have uh, parental care, by parental care, that both the male and the female take care of the chickens in these birds. Mm -hmm. And uh, there we have an interesting thing about cold and heat because 85% um, 
of all birds have biparental care in the tropics. And if you go to the poles, to the colder areas, that 85% goes further up. So you have about 90% biparental care towards the poles and in the Antarctics, uh, where uh, around the South Pole, where you have about 50 bird species, penguins, penguins and, and other birds. Only one out of these 50 bird species uh, ha doesn't have biparental care. So the, bi the percentage there is 98% biparental care. So you see that uh, parents in birds care more, more about their youngs uh, towards the poles. And the interesting thing is that in humans, it's the same. You find that uh, around the equator, fathers don't care much about their children. And if you go towards the poles, fathers are care, uh, caring more and more about their children. And I have observed this myself uh, because I've been working in, on, at the University of Bergen in Norway for three years. And uh, in the afternoon, when I walk up to a preschool uh, where the parents were uh, gathering their children, I saw more fathers than mothers coming to the kindergarten to collect their boys and girls. And also these fathers um, pay more attention to their children uh, out, out of school and they, they cook, they cook more uh, as well. So they are more feminine fathers than they are macho fathers. So what you see in birds repeats itself in humans. And of course, that's no accident. That's no accidents. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, do, does climate have any influence on levels of cooperation? I mean, we're talking about families, perhaps we could apply it to cooperation between the parents and even, I mean, I don't know, things like cooperative breathing, uh, I mean, the help coming from other people that are part of the family and things like that. Uh, I mean, is there anything like that occurring? Yes, yes. The, the patterns of uh, interactions um, between uh, father, mother and with the children, the, these patterns are very different. And I, I make a distinction normally between a pro-social behavior, uh, two types of pro-social behavior. Uh, if you are pro-social, uh, acting positively towards others, and you are also unselfish, then you have altruism. If you are pro-social, but you are also having uh, a keen self-interest, you are selfish as well then you get cooperation and both altruism and cooperation these two types of pro-social behavior occur more in 
families towards the poles, less around the equator. And uh, so this, this, this has to do with biparental care as well. And that's the co-op, one of these forms of cooperation. And, and uh, that's very typical, not only for families, but also for organizations, work organizations, and even governments. So you have other types of pro-social cooperation uh, towards the poles, more co cooperation, more coordination, and also more helping behavior, and also more selfish helping behavior, but also more unselfish helping behavior, that is altruism. Mm -hmm. So is this does this cooperation have anything to do with survival or does it depend on the type of climate and economic culture where we find ourselves? Yes, it, 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 there is a connection with, with survival, with climatic survival. But the, the, when it comes to cooperation, uh, there is a split again, because in, in uh, the rich countries that we saw earlier, the green ones in the picture, uh, there uh, you cooperate with anybody. You have individualist cultures where people uh, cooperate with other individuals, and it doesn't matter whether the other individuals are from your own group or from other groups. But in the poor countries, in the more demanding climates, you have more collectivistic cultures. And there, you, your cooperation is different because you now you cooperate more with people in your own family and people within your own work group. So uh, it's, it's another kind of uh, cooperation. It's intra-group cooperation. And that's a, a really difference with the individualist cooperation in the richer countries, in the more demanding climates. Mm -hmm. So just to close off this topic, uh, does climate also influence gender roles and the kinds of gender roles that we find in different societies? That's another important topic. Uh, and uh, as the biparental care already indicates, yes, uh, we have uh, we have done research into that, and we have found that the gender equality is really highest around the equator. It peaks around the equator inequality, and then it tapers off toward the poles. So we have more gender equality towards the north and towards the south poles on earth and an important question is of course okay but um, what's going on there now cold climates are not only cold climates they also have more variability there is more niche or habitat variability towards the poles because there uh, you have more seasonal variability in day length variation in temperatures. There is more difference between winters and summers towards the poles than there is in the tropics. And then there is the plant growth uh, has uh, more variability towards the poles because there are more seasons. 
and decisionality towards the poles also uh, gives uh, different animal life. So uh, this this huge uh, increase in variability towards higher latitudes has an impact on how people, organizations operate. Because when we know uh, I'm an organizational psychologist and when you are in a, a very stable environment, you have to react with a more stable response. So you, you don't need much flexibility. You can have a really inflexible organization. And one uh, way to have flexibility is to have gender equality because then the roles are not that fixed. Uh, women can do it, men can do it, it's all right. You have gender equality. So gender equality towards the poles helps to manage the greater variability. For example, the International Labour Organization in Geneva has recently told that uh, there is one problem in the world is that in some countries um, women are not allowed to work after nightfall. Now, if you have gender equality and men and women are both allowed to work after nightfall, then yeah, weather shifts and nightfall shifts are not that much of a problem. So gender equality helps to solve everyday problems that you hardly recognize as a problem, but they are. And that's why in the long run, um, you get more uh, role flexibility between genders and towards higher latitudes where there is more variability. Now, this holds in modern countries. And it would be very interesting, we thought, if this would also hold in pre-industrial societies, because in pre-industrial societies in the past, where uh, you didn't have influences of modernization, emancipation, economic growth, and globalization, it wasn't there. So we did another piece of research in 90 pre-industrial societies. And there too, we found, yes, already then, centuries ago, you have more gender equality towards the poles and there was more gender inequality around the equator. Interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, so now uh, changing topics, let's talk about uh, how climate influences work and the kinds of organizations that people create or develop. First of all, what is work and how is it influenced by climate? Because I would imagine that maybe people in different cultures classify different things as work. But uh, how do you approach this question? That's right. Well, there are, of course, <laughs> dozens of uh, definitions of what work is. But uh, I would define work simply as uh, everything you have to do to survive and thrive. So 
It's hard work. It's volunteer work. It's paid work. It's everything you do uh, to keep well and to keep your family well and to, to survive and thrive. Uh, and so and, and a silly question, for example, is, well, does that mean that eating is working? Well, the Americans think so. When I, I was sitting in this American restaurant and there was some food left on my plate, the waitress came up to me and said, oh, sir, are you still working on it? <laughs> yeah. So uh, everything is, is work, what you do, what you have to do. And uh, yeah, when you bring in climate, then you have least work to do in the easygoing cultures and climates around 22 degrees Celsius, because um, plant life, animal life, everything is paradise there. So it's so ideal, you don't have much work. There's much more work to do in the demanding climates. Uh, in the hotter climates, you have to work more, although it's, it's more difficult there too. But most work you have to do in the colder climates, and they are, they uh, deserve a lot of work. Uh, our research shows. So the the, the sequence is least work in in the uh, ideal climates, more work in the hotter climates, most work in the coldest climates. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this also influences the kinds of work values and perhaps uh, work ethics that people sure. in different cultures sure. have, right? Sure. In the, the easygoing cultures in the paradise, they uh, more or less have uh, uh, playing values. Playing is much more <laughs> important there than in other parts of the world. And uh, work is less important, although they do have to work, of course. But uh, work values are more important in the demanding climates. Uh, so they are a little bit more important in the, in the hotter climates. And they are very uh, much important, most important in, in the coldest climates. Yeah. So there is a difference in work values. Yeah. Uh, and then another thing associated with work is the motives, the work motives that people have. There are intrinsic and extrinsic motives. So uh, could you tell us about that and how do they vary between cultures? Yeah, of course. Yes. Uh, in in, in uh, intrinsic uh, motives are uh, when you work for fun. You, you don't do it for the money. Extensive motives, you work for the money and for possessions and for, for your position. High position is an extensive motive eh, to get ahead. And, uh, well, every, everyone in the world works both for intrinsic and extrinsic uh, reasons. But the, the proportion and the importance of intrinsic and extrinsic varies a little bit. And uh, the intrinsic um, motives are more and more important in richer countries in demanding climates. And the extrinsic motives are more and more important in the poor uh, countries and among poor people 
um, who have to work in demanding uh, hot or cold climates. And uh, we did research on that. And yes, the hypothesis about this were confirmed as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's interesting because if someone moves from, let's say, a culture where extrinsic motives uh, are more important than intrinsic ones, for example, and they move to another cu culture where it's the opposite, I mean, doesn't it have some influence on how we should address the question of placing expats in different, uh, different, work, different jobs, for example? Yeah, yeah, of course, because it, 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 it's important uh, whether you uh, place uh, people in the same kind of climate and with the same kind of economy or in a different climate with a different economy. So that makes makes a huge difference. But you have headquarters of multinationals, of course, who have to send their expats all over the world. So um, what do they have to do? Well, that depends. What? Why are they sending their people abroad? If they do that uh, because they have to manage a branch abroad. Uh, and they should manage it there efficiently and effectively. Uh, then they should send them to branches with the same climate and the same economy, because then they are in the same kind of environment and they know that culture and they will function well. But you can have other goals as well. If you say, okay, this employee uh, is, is so promising, uh, he or she must be uh, really a top uh, manager in the future and he or she must have a lot of experience you can send this person uh, to um, a, a, a branch that has a misfit a branch with a completely different climate and a different economy so that this person um, learns a lot and uh, get a richer uh, experience and it's a kind of education so that he or she is uh, uh, gets uh, is better uh, shaped for the future job mm -hmm. so yeah, these it, conversations it, that you could have when you in your expat policies yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's very interesting and we are we are already getting into organizations uh, in your work, you talk about two different kinds of organizations, bureaucratic ones and autocratic ones. Uh, and I think you have a picture there that would illustrate the difference between them. So could you tell us about that? Here's, here's the picture. Uh, on the vertical axis, you see cultural tightness. What is cultural tightness? It's, it's a combination of uh, centralization and regulation and uh, formalization so you in a tight culture uh, in in organizations you have uh, huge uh, differences between leaders and followers so there are there is a power distance there also you have many layers of bosses and managers 
And because power centralization is very important, you have a pyramid of uh, leaders, and also you have many rules there, regulations. And the combination of much regulations and rules and roles, that's cultural tightness. And in an ad hocacy, it's the opposite. There you have decentralization, so that's low on this vertical dimension. And uh, there you have a loose culture with not many rules and not many leaders and uh, few power distances. Uh, employees uh, are all uh, more or less equal. Now, <clears throat> here, this picture is different from the earlier one because there uh, the southern and northern hemisphere uh, were uh, collapsed. And here I have uh, the uh, on the horizontal axis, you see the South Pole at the left, the North Pole at the right, and the zero is the equator, so it's latitude there. And if we um, place latitude against cultural tightness, you see that the most bureaucratic uh, organizations with most um, rigid leadership and uh, rigid rules is found around the equator and organizations become looser and looser towards the poles and that's an, a very important difference that we find mm -hmm. is it that one type of organization is more successful than the others across cultures or does it depend on the on the climate yes it does uh, um, when we look again at this picture it's not only uh, that in around the equator uh, we 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 find more um, bureaucratic organizations with cultural tightness they uh, they are more prevalent but they're also more effective because there uh, you have little variability. Uh, everything is stable. It's uh, temperature, temperatures uh, don't vary much. Uh, day length is all almost always the same. So uh, a, a stable environment requires that you have an inflexible organization with many rules and, and, and roles and bosses. Mm -hmm. And uh, or towards the poles, uh, then that changes because variability increases. So what you need to handle this variability is you, you need a more flexible organization with fewer rules and fewer uh, leaders that tell you what to do. And you, you, you have more delegation there. And again, uh, this is holds true in modern nations, you see 104 countries in this picture. But we have also asked, what about pre-industrial cultures? Before we had globalization, colonization, all these things, modernization, did they already have more rigid bureaucratic organizations of their tribes around the equator then towards the poles? And the answer is yes. 
-hmm. already then, centuries ago, was these uh, in these pre-industrial societies, uh, you found that uh, there was more agricultural uh, business around the equator because agriculture is a more inflexible uh, subsistence mode. And uh, there, it's the same place where you have gender inequality. And there you too have bureaucratic organizations, you have more agriculture, and towards the poles, you have more hunting gathering tribes uh, because the variability of the of the, uh, the higher latitude variability required more uh, flexibility in how you earn your money and gathering and uh, gathering and, and hunting is more flexible. And they moved like the birds and, and, and the animals too move in, uh, in other seasons. So they migrated more with the animals uh, during seasons. So there was more flexibility there. So basically, modern organizations uh, around the world reflect a paradigm that was already there in pre-industrial societies. Mm -hmm. uh, so pe people have this idea that the culture that we find expressed in a particular organization and maybe here we can talk about uh, pol political organizations as well uh, is the product of its leadership of its leaders uh, yes. ra rather than the other way around that, that is leaders being the product of their cultures so how does it go exactly are people right when they say that or not yeah, leaders are a product of their culture, you're right. But so are parents, and so are teachers. And this brings us to the topic of cultural transmission, because cultures, how, cultures persist. How do they do that? Well, it's because parents and teachers and leaders are not only products of their culture, but they then start to transmit their culture. So they are also producers of their culture and so that the culture persists in, in, into the next generation. And here is an interaction connection with uh, the distribution around the globe because uh, when you have cultural tightness, so you have rigid leadership and many roles then there is more of a need of cultural transmission than when it's loose. And of, okay, a man can do it, a female can do it. Uh, it's not important whether you are a leader or a follower uh, subordinate. And um, so you, there is more of a need uh, of cultural transmission in collectivist cultures around the equator, where you have rigid, culturally tight organizations and polities. You're right, that's the same, it's also an organization. So you would expect then that parents, teachers, and leaders have a more pronounced position 
have a higher status around the equator than they have towards the poles. And that's exactly what happens because uh, a parent, a teacher and a leader are very important people in collectivist cultures around the equator. But if you go towards the poles, then they lose their status and they are becoming more and more equal and less and less important and more like everybody as if they are normal people. Mm -hmm. So with this framework, is it possible for us to also understand a bit better how nepotism, uh, different levels of nepotism across different cultures? Yeah, nepotism is an important uh, feature of it. It's, it's one way of being collectivist. Collectivist has to do with familism. Uh, and nepotism is a form of familism because uh, you, uh, you favor your own um, family members, nephews, whatever, and give them positions in organizations. And that still happens a lot around the world, but it happens more towards the equator. And it happens less towards the poles. So uh, again, there is this basic structure in the world that already existed in pre-industrial societies as well. Mm -hmm. And another thing that it's interesting about nepotism is that usually we find a negative correlation between it and economic growth or sustained economic growth. But there's a particular example, the example of China, where we find a strong nepotism, strong ethnocentrism, and strong sustained economic growth. So is there any explanation for that? Well, it's very intriguing. It's very, <laughs> sorry, it's very striking and it's very intriguing. Uh, but I don't have an explanation and certainly not in terms of climate, but it, it's, it, it, it is, uh, until now we had in the West, uh, as it is often called, we had the theory that yes, you don't, uh, you don't need nepotism. Nepotism is wrong for economic growth and ethnocentrism and, and discrimination is all wrong for uh, economic growth. And in China, uh, you don't have that libertarian model. And that's a challenge for the libertarian model because there you have the, the unique combination of, of nepotism, it's strong in China, there is a lot of ethnocentrism, discrimination uh, against minorities. And still there is uh, stable economic growth. And uh, of course, uh, they have a, a problem with COVID-19 uh, pande pandemic as well, but already they are uh, keeping up and uh, more growth now. So they are restoring their economy very quickly. And that's a challenge. Uh, to the, the, the liberal model in the West. We thought it was the only true model. Apparently it isn't. You can make uh, a living and you can uh, grow economically and you can survive and thrive in more than one way. And the Chinese prove it. Yeah. 
Yeah, let's see if someone in the future is able to explain that, let's say, exception. So the next question that I would like to ask you is, does this climato-economics approach also explain things like democracy and autocracy? I mean, why different countries have different levels it of democracy and certainly does yeah it certainly does because uh, when we were talking about uh, organizations i was not only referring to companies or firms uh, because the the government is an organization so uh, a democracy is of course a loose organization and uh, an autocracy is a very tight organization because in an, in, an, in an autocracy where people are not free, you have um, a rigid leadership, you have many roles, and so you have bureaucracy there. And uh, in, in a democracy, uh, you have more equality and uh, more less rules, and uh, leaders are more equal to their uh, subordinates. So that's, uh, yes, the, the, the entire theory also applies to uh, how we uh, govern the world. Uh, and, uh, well, when you have the, the norms of the United Nations and you ask uh, how uh, governments are, are governed, what the quality is, then uh, according to their norms, uh, governmental uh, efficiency and effectiveness and quality increase from the equator toward the poles when the organization gets a loser and you get more governmental quality mm -hmm. okay so uh, let's now talk about how cultures change across time so my first question about that would be perhaps there are some aspects of our evolved psychology that are important to talk about here for people to understand a bit better where this comes from. So and I think you have another picture there to show us that if I'm not mistaken was published in the Journal of Cross-Cultural Psychology, right? That's right. That's this picture. Mm -hmm. and, and in this uh, research, um, we looked at the, the question, how uh, do uh, cultures come about? And the culture is a shared psychological functioning. So how do we create cultures? And uh, th this was a very complex study, uh, again, uh, involving uh, many people and countries around the world. And what we found is that winter cold and summer heat, they uh, interact in producing rain, and more steady rain you find in the colder uh, areas where you have cold winters and cool summers. And if you have uh, steady rain and not as irregular as in the tropics, then uh, you have more dairying. You can have cows and other animals that you can milk and because you have that there uh, with meadows and, and all the, then it's an evolutionary advantage when you drink milk. 
So people have started to drink milk there. And the picture shows that as over many centuries and over many, many, many generations, they develop lactose tolerance because normally we are not lactose tolerant. We can't drink milk. Humans cannot drink milk. But in these areas, they have uh, over many centuries developed what we call genetically lactase persistence. And the phenotypic, phenotypic term is lactose tolerance. So in, in many countries in, in Europe and Northern America, we have lactose tolerance. In 1500 already, we could measure that. And from there on, then, you had huge developments over three centuries. And you see that empowering resources in 1800, 300 years later, were a product of steady rain and lactose tolerant because people who are lactose tolerant, they are healthier and they also uh, develop themselves more. So they were, after three uh, centuries, they were richer, they were healthier, they were more educated, there was more postponed parenthood. So the, the women didn't get too many children anymore. So the, the fertility was going down in these countries. And so these were all empowering resources around 1800. And then in the last two centuries, between 1800 and now, you got what we call a co-evolution of genes and culture. So the lactose tolerance, which is the phenotype of a gene that you can drink milk, uh, after uh, uh, after uh, giving uh, uh, birth, uh, then that interacts with how many resources you have, and it's the combination of the lactose tolerance in many countries with the empowering resources three centuries later that together are at the roots of our freedoms today. And we, uh, the team, this was done by an international team, this research, that team called these freedoms the, the uncultured freedoms. And they are the fundamental freedoms that we have, like, first of all, freedom from want, but freedom of expression, freedom from discrimination, freedom uh, to develop and, and realize uh, your human potential. So this is, in essence, we are back now to what, what we started with, the psychosocial functioning, whether it's optimal. And when that's optimal, you have uncultured freedoms. And this is uh, a bit of the trajectory, one of the trajectories uh, to, that have led to these cultures. Of course, there are more, many more determinants, but this was a significant path of co-evolution. Mm -hmm. So, uh, there are studies that track how cultures have changed with climate variation, right? Right. Yes. That's exactly, that's exactly the idea, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, the, but the climate changes, the, cultures, the culture have to change. 
And uh, when the economy changes, the culture has to change too, but it's the combination of the two that's important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's, we've yeah. already talked about what happens when people from different cultures with different work motives have to adapt to a new culture. What about when people from cultures that have adapted to particular kinds of climates have to adapt to the technological and social organization imported from more developed countries as we can see happening nowadays? Yes. Well, there are, there are many uh, historical examples and uh, I can give you a few. Uh, a very inter interesting uh, case uh, is the case of the Vikings who went to Greenland and they were called the, the Greenland Norse. And the Greenland Norse went from Scandinavia to Greenland around the year th of thousand, thousand years after, after Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, they went there and uh, they could go there because uh, that uh, is when the, the, the earth was heating up a little bit. And it's, it, that period is known as the medieval warming period. And when the, the Vikings uh, arrived there in Greenland, they, they created there what we have called earlier a self-expression culture. Because they, what they brought there was an, an agricultural uh, way of, of living. And uh, Greenland at that time was, a, was, as the word says, green. When they arrived, they saw a green country. Uh, and, 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 and so they, they thrived there and, and uh, learned a lot and were getting ahead, all these things that we mentioned earlier. So they were happy people in Greenland and uh, for many centuries. So they, they settled there, had many settlements there, most well known are the Eastern and Western settlement. And in 1100, 1200, uh, everything went all right because we had this medieval warming period. And they had a good economy uh, because they, they, had, they did agriculture, but also there were many, uh, they had walrus, uh, the walrus tusk. Uh, and they exported these walrus tusk to Europe. And in Europe, they, uh, they, there was a big need for elephant uh, tusks. And the elephant tusks were brought from uh, Africa. So they were competing with the elephant tusk by bringing in the walrus tusk. And they almost won. So they had a, a very uh, good economy. So they had all the features of uh, the rich people at the time uh, in, in uh, a demanding climate. And uh, they were doing well, but then climate changed. So around 1400, it became colder and colder. And later that appeared to be the onset of what was later uh, labeled the little ice period. It started slowly and it was colder and colder until the oceans froze. So all the trade with Europe came to a standstill the winters were longer in Greenland. Greenland wasn't green anymore. 
it was white. So that their agriculture didn't work anymore. So they became poorer and poorer. And their self-expression culture changed into a survival culture. And they had, as, as we have seen in a survival culture, you have a bureaucratic organization, you have many roles, etc. Now at that time, religion was very important. So the main organization was the church. And the clergymen were very important. They didn't work, but they did eat. Uh, so the, you had high taxes, and the bishop was a very autocratic leader, not in the 12th and the 13th century, but in the 14th century, the bishop became very autocratic, authoritarian leader. So uh, they were really on 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 a sliding slope, uh, and downward, and. Uh, going from a self-expression culture to a survival culture. And in close to 1500, at the end of the 15th century, we don't know exactly what happened, but either they died or they were conquered by the Inuit or they sailed back to Scandinavia. But they, the the society vanished. So we still have the ruins, ru the ruins of the Western and Eastern settlement of the Vikings in Greenland. A uh, horrible story of five centuries long, eh, where you have all the stages and where the climato economic theory uh, of culture uh, was really confirmed. So that's one example. And uh, to give you a uh, if if, the, if you find it interesting, I can give you a completely different example mm -hmm. of the Amish. Sure. Amish. They lived uh, near the, the Swiss-German border, but they had a strong religion and uh, they, uh, they had to flee because of their religion. So they went to North America and they settled in the, uh, at several places. And they brought their agriculture, but they brought their religion too. And they, uh, with, from their religion, uh, they, they had certain values. And they settled in the same climate. So climate didn't change. They brought the same agricultural methods. Didn't change. They thought God didn't want them to change. So what happened in the next two centuries? Nothing. The culture stayed the same. So they still have the same culture because they didn't change the climate, they didn't change the economy. So the theory predicts the culture should stay the same. Nowadays that's changing, of course, a little bit. And, and it has to because there is global warming. And then I can give you a completely different example. I have lived in New Guinea. And the Dutch had decided that the Papuans uh, were very poor and uh, they thought they should be developed. Now these people, uh, many of these people lived uh, by on fishing in small canoes called prawns. And they, uh, they went out for fishing every day. 
and fishing for the family. And, and uh, well, they were happy, that's all right. The Dutch thought they were not happy enough. They should have motorboats. And they should have uh, bigger nets. So they developed these people by giving them motorboats and bigger nets. And these uh, Papuans went out and they had a huge catch. And they catched as much in one day as they otherwise would have catched in a whole week. So they came home, ate the food, and didn't, didn't work the rest of the week because they had enough. So there was a complete misfit between what the Dutch had in mind and what the Papuans did. <laughs> and that, that, that comes back to what you asked about the expats, huh? that the misfits between uh, one's, one climatic ne economic niche on earth uh, where they think that they should change another climate to econom economic niche on earth. Uh, and, and didn't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, those are very interesting examples. And what about, uh, since you mentioned at a certain point there when talking about the Vikings, for example, the effects that climate change have on their culture, what about future cultures? Do we have any idea about how culture, how different cultures will adapt to global warming in the future? And, and I know you have another picture to show us that I think comes from an article published in the journal Behavioral and Brain Sciences. This one is about um, a research project I did. Um, five years ago, mm -hmm. and that's why it is refers to the year 2012. And the question at the time was, uh, what will happen in the next 100 years uh, to our cultures around the globe? And I used uh, several indicators uh, produced by the intergovernment, intergovernmental panel on climate change they have uh, produced projections of uh, both climate and economy. And they had uh, four climate scenarios and four economic scenarios and many predictions. But I use the most likely future scenarios for economy and climate and then predicted, forecasted how the freedoms in the world would look like in the year 2112, 100 years from now. And on the horizontal axis, you see the measured freedom in 212. So these are all these fundamental freedoms that we have been gone over through. And I predicted the levels of freedom in 100 years on. Now, if no country in the world would change, we would get the diagonal that you see projected here, the broken diagonal. All countries would be on the bro broken uh, diagonal. They are not. Uh, the, the red curve tells us that some countries at the left um, who were very uh, poor and had little freedom in 200, uh, 2012, 
will have much freedom 100 years on, especially Turkmenistan in, at the left, the upper left. You see Uzbekistan there, Kazakhstan, Saudi Arabia as well. These countries uh, are winners. And other countries are, of course, losers. And the country that uh, is a, a particular uh, a loser, if you look at the bottom, uh, is Afghanistan. Because all of its neighbor countries, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, they are winners. They will have much more freedom. And Afghanistan will have even less freedom than it had now. So it's already a failed state. And it will continue to be a failed state according to this prognosis in 100, 100 years from now, which is terrible. And on, on the right side of the picture, you see how very rich countries will uh, adapt to uh, global warming and uh, how their economies will change. Uh, Norway and Sweden are up there. They are very close to the di diagonal. So Scandinavia, Denmark, uh, Scandinavia, uh, will, it will persist. The culture will not change very much. But the losers in the rich world are New Zealand and the Netherlands. And again, so it's, it's an interaction. So it's not the economy that does it. It's not the climate that does it. It's the interaction of climate and economy, because they will get a, 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 an economy that does not as well. And uh, a little bit of a warming, they will have a warming climate in New Zealand uh, and in, 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 in the Netherlands, uh, you will have a warmer climate. And a warmer climate means for these rich countries, less challenges, more threats, uh, so uh, it's 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 not going well there. So these are our uh, predictions for how how it will how it will could look like in hundred years from now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's very fascinating. Can we say that these different kinds of cultures? are built bottom up i mean we've already talked about leaders and leadership a little bit and we arrived at the conclusion that it's not leaders that produce cultures but rather they are the products of culture so can we say that these different cultures are built bottom up Well, climate doesn't work on the bottom. It doesn't work <laughs> on the top. It works on both. It's an, an all-persuasive influence. And for the economy, it's the same. The economy doesn't work on, on, on only on the elite or only on the, the have-nots. Uh, both factors work on everyone. So both answers are correct. It will be both bottom-up and top-down, because there will be no distinction. These are overall factors that uh, really points, the points of intervention are everywhere. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So uh, let's finish by talking about some exceptions and limitations to these climato uh, climatoeconomic model of uh, organization, psychology, and so on. So what uh, I, I've read in your work, in one of your books, uh, you talking about how languages differ from hot to cold places. Could you tell us about that? Yes, that that's indeed is an exception, because the, the climatoeconomic theory uh, believes that you all that you can't uh, say anything about the impact of climate as long as you don't know what the economy is. Now, language is one example where the economy doesn't matter because the languages are uh, not a matter of how rich or poor you are. You have a language, and but does it have a, a, a relationship with climate? Yes, it does. And there, there has been solid research into that, that uh, there is an evolutionary advantage when you live in a cold climate no matter whether you are rich or poor, then uh, you have a problem with thermal regulation. You want to keep yourself warm and your mouth is one of the places where you lose a lot of warmth. So you are better off in a cold climate when you keep your mouth shut. In a warm climate, it's the opposite. You are so warm, so hot, that you want to get rid of as much warmth as you can. So you are better off evolutionary when you open your mouth. Now, languages have different kind of letters. You have the consonants and you have the vowels. Consonants, like the F, the P, the D, the TH, the CH, all these consonants. When you pronounce them, you close your breast channel, you close your mouth to pronounce these letters. So in cold climates, it would be better to talk in consonants and keep your mouth shut because then you don't lose warmth. In a hot climate, it's the opposite. You have vowels and to, to pronounce vowels, you have to open your mouth and use your everything to say an A, an E, an O, a U. So uh, to give an example, uh, a good word to, to illustrate this uh, in a cold climate, uh, you'll say Vladivostok. And in Vladivostok up north, uh, you have many consonants, but a typical word for a hot climate would be Somalia. And then you use all the ah and the o oh and you you get rid of much warmth and heat from your body. Now I have called this the echo of language. And it has been uh, the research has covered four five thousand words from sixty languages all around the globe and yes they found 
there are many more consonants used in the languages towards the, the North and South Poles, and there are many more vowels used around the equator. So that's a direct link between climate and language, where the economy doesn't count. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, what about suicide? Because since Emil Durkheim back in the 19th century, people have been trying to explain suicide as a social phenomenon, I mean, the factors behind it and so on. Is there any relationship that we know of between climate and suicide? Yeah, that, that was one of the propositions of the, the, well, the famous Emil Durkheim at the end of the 19th century. And he said, okay, when you are in a, in a dark and cold climate, uh, you have more suicide there. And uh, they have been believing that for a long time. And uh, frankly, I have believed it too. But uh, when we looked into it more closely, and now the, the latest research shows, no, there's no such uh, relationship. Uh, it's inconsistent. It's not the same, but then it should be the same on the in the northern and in the southern hemisphere. It, it isn't. So there is no consistent pattern. And uh, maybe future research could show otherwise, but at this point in time, I would say there is no good pattern between uh, climate and, uh, and suicide. Mm -hmm. What about climate and religion? Because there we have different religions and different cultures. I, I mean, is there any relationship yeah. or there, is religion influenced by climate? Yeah, there, there, are, there is a strong latitudinal gradient in religiosity. So people are uh, most religious and a different, different kind of uh, religion, religion, of course, but religios religiosity is uh, peaks at the equator and people are less and less religious when you go to the poles. But uh, this is not a matter of climato-economic uh, theory. Uh, we don't know why it is, so we are we are quite sure it's uh, that when when you the, uh, when you are richer, uh, then people have less of a religion. Uh, but there is no interaction with climate, and we don't know why there is such a strong uh, latitudinal gradient in that re religiosity uh, diminishes toward the poles. So we are waiting solid research that people could do to show why is this the case. We know that, that we should have described it that, like that, but we don't have an explanation yet. Mm -hmm. Okay, so one final question. We've already talked about expats and migrants here a little bit, but can this model give us new insights into how we should deal with migrants, what would be the best strategy to deal with them, particularly now that it's one of the hot topics in politics? I mean, there are different strategies like integration, assimilation or separation. Uh, does it tell us how we should uh, go? Yeah, 
but that's another that's another theory because the the climatic economic theory of culture tells us about cultural evolution tells us about cultural transmission but doesn't deal with migration yeah so this these migratory theories are in need of uh, there are other theories as well so the the climatic economic theory of culture makes no claims about how you react when you migrate the theory can predict whether there is a mis match or mismatch between the climatic economic niche where you started and the climatic economic niche where you ended up and so it, it provides information that you could then uh, use in in another theory to predict whether uh, it will be integration assimilation or separation mm -hmm. Okay, great. So, uh, Dr. Van de Vliert, let's end the interview here. Just before we go, would you like to mention some of the places on the internet where people can find your work? Well, if they simply uh, Google Evert van de Vliert, my name, then they can go to my site at the University of Groningen and uh, find my my own all my publications there uh, but also when you when you google Evert van de Vliert you will see already some of these publications in nature human behavior and behavioral and brain sciences uh, and other places okay great so i will leave links to that in the description box of the interview when dr van de Vliert Again, thank you again. Uh, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show, and it was really nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel back in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with top academics and scholars from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you prefer PayPal, I also have links to that in the description box of the video. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please leave a like, share it and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett Perga Larsen. Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henry Kalenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Kintis, Ruth Gervoz, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Yevan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, 
Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslan Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yassila Deza Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, and Yannick Punter. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardis France, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rujewski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.